A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. A different drummer. And now, coming to you from dead center on your dial, welcome to Risk Parity Radio, where we explore alternatives in asset allocations for the do-it-yourself investor. Broadcasting to you now from the comfort of his easy chair, here is your host, Frank Vasquez. Thank you, Mary, and welcome to Risk Parity Radio. If you are new here and wonder what we are talking about, you may wish to go back and listen to some of the foundational episodes for this program. Yeah, baby, yeah! And the basic foundational episodes are episodes 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9. Some of our listeners, including Karen and Chris, have identified additional episodes that you may consider foundational. And those are episodes 12, 14, 16, 19, 21, 56, 82, and 184. And you probably should check those out too because we have the finest podcast audience available. Top drawer. Really top drawer. Along with a host named after a hot dog. Lighten up, Francis. But now onward, episode 234. Today on Risk Parity Radio, it's time for the grand unveiling of money! Which means we'll be doing our weekly portfolio reviews of the seven sample portfolios that you can find at www.riskparityradio.com on the portfolios page. But before we get to that, I'm intrigued by this, how you say, emails. And, first off, First off, we have an email from Alexi. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, Bruce Dickinson. If you're not into the whole brevity thing. And the dude writes. Hey, Frank. Great to have you back on the airwaves. Who knew Iowa in November was where the glitterati wintered in luxury? Regarding your comments on episode 218 on incorporating momentum into a risk parity portfolio, I was intrigued by your statement that the momentum strategy tended to be tax inefficient relative to large cap growth. I looked up the tax cost ratio for both QMOM and VUG on Fidelity and found them to be 0.05% and 0.16% respectively. So it appears that, at least in these ETFs, momentum is more tax-efficient than large-cap growth? AZ. You are correct, sir, yes! All right, as you all might guess, this email is from the end of November. No, the streams are swollen. Since I haven't been to Iowa since November. Well, the frickin' God! But getting on this momentum issue... We recently talked about this in episode 231, so I won't repeat myself from that. So I won't repeat myself from that. 
But I will link to something in the show notes that may inform this discussion, which is a little article from Dimensional Fund Advisors about momentum strategies. And the real question with momentum strategies is whether the funds that are offered are really capturing what the academics meant by momentum, which required very frequent trading. And so Dimensional analyzed, and this is from 2018, they had analyzed the common momentum funds to determine whether the funds themselves were reflecting the momentum factor. And they found that actually they were not capturing the momentum factor in a meaningful way. And therefore, they concluded that most funds focusing on momentum have not been able to capture the momentum premium after costs, even when the premium was positive. What this really means is that that if you are going to construct a momentum fund like the academics use that term, that fund would be tax inefficient. And that's what I'm saying when I'm talking about these things. Just to be clear. Now go away or I shall taunt you a second time. Now perhaps this QMOM fund that you found solves that problem. Since that article was from 2018, I don't think QMOM has been around much longer than that. It looks like QMOM has been around since 2016. And I doubt it was one of the funds that Dimensional was analyzing in their 2018 paper. But I think the question still remains then, is that capturing the same kind of momentum factor that was described in those academic papers that required very high turnover, which is what would lead you to tax problems if you actually constructed a fund like that? I did go put this in the asset correlation analyzer again, along with a small cap momentum fund and mid cap momentum fund and a large cap momentum fund. It was interesting. The mid cap momentum fund is actually the best performer out of those three and compared to QMOM going back to just 2016. But all of them are still relatively highly correlated with a large cap growth fund, except for QMOM, which has a correlation factor of 0.77 with VUG, our sample large cap growth fund. But I will link to all these things in the show notes and you can check them out at your leisure. Yes! In the end, if you choose to add a momentum fund to your stock mix, I would also consider its other factors, namely, is it a large cap or small cap fund or mid cap or Is it value tilted or growth tilted or is it somewhere in the middle? Well, that's probably enough of the dude for one day. (laughs) And so thank you for that email. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well, the dude abides. Second off. Second off, we have an email from Yangon, which is probably pronounced more like Yangon. If my flat Midwestern accent wasn't getting in my way. We're from Iowa, Iowa, made of all the land, every hand. And Jan Gon writes. Hi, Uncle Frank. I've been a fan of risk parity portfolio construction. Thank you for your generosity and wisdom. I have two unrelated questions for you today. One, from the lesson I learned on your show, 
I changed my stock portion of my portfolio from 100% total market to a 70-30 total market small cap value funds. My question is what characteristics of mid-cap funds makes mid-cap generally unattractive in your portfolio construction? I thought as small cap companies grow their market share, they become mid-cap and some will make it as far as large cap companies. What aspects of mid-cap makes mid-cap not as useful in your portfolio construction? Two, you might need to put an attorney hat on to answer this question, but as a listener of your entire episodes up to date, I feel compelled to share your knowledge to friends, family, and many more to help them with their portfolio construction. The question is, where is the legal boundary for helping others with all money matters, including portfolio construction? Do we need to have an official designation, such as a CFP or CPA, of some sort to coach people on basic personal finance management, getting out of debt, and or more advanced ideas like portfolio construction legally if we are charging fees? What is the scope of practice of CFP or other regulated professionals that hardcore listeners of your show, yet amateurs with no certification, need to be aware of and stay away from? In short, what can I do to help others and what can I not do? Thank you in advance, Yangon. All right, looking at your first question about mid-cap funds. Well, maybe we should have a mid-cap momentum fund. That seems to be doing well or has done well in the recent past. That fund is XMMO, by the way. But the question really goes to diversification by the size factor. And obviously, mid-caps cannot be as diversified from small or large caps as small and large caps are diversified from each other, just by definition. That is the straight stuff, oh Funkmaster. And the academics have found that there's no particular advantage or disadvantage to a company being a mid-cap company. So there's nothing wrong with mid-cap stocks, and it's not something you need to avoid. In fact, if you look at something like REITs or even some utilities, a lot of those are mid-cap stocks if you were going for those sectors. It's just not adding anything to the mix. So there's no reason to have a fund in particular that's devoted to being a mid-cap fund. I suppose you could put this in the category of factors that actually don't mean anything or are reflecting something else. I think dividend-paying stocks is another one of those things. What dividend stocks generally have is a high correlation to value stocks, so you're better off focusing on the value aspect of it. The dividend-paying aspect of it is more up to the companies themselves and whether they choose to do that or share buybacks or have some other thing going on there. It's not a real underlying factor from an academic perspective. So just focus on the value factor and you'll get some dividends there too if you really wanted them. If you really wanted to buy stocks for income, I suggest you look at preferred shares funds because they are designed specifically for that purpose and then you can hold less of them. But now I'm meandering off because you didn't ask me anything about those things. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. But just as a general principle, there are a lot of characteristics or pseudo factors that are not really meaningful. And whenever somebody describes a fund with a certain characteristic, you always have to be asking, yes, but is that a meaningful characteristic for the purposes of diversification or anything else? And mid-caps is one that it's probably not meaningful. You want neither cold nor hot. 
So because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Forget about it. All right, your second question about what you can say to coach people and whether you need a certification for it. Let me preface this. This is not legal advice. This is just what I know personally from studying information about these things. I'm happier than a peg in slop. First, in terms of certifications and rules, the financial services industry is basically just a big mess. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. There's something like 73 different certifications, some which are highly meaningful, like a CFA, which takes years to get, and a lot of certificates that take a couple of weekends of study to get. Unlike the legal or medical professions, there are no ethical standards or very little in the way of ethical standards imposed on the financial services industry generally. They're sitting out there waiting to give you their money. Are you going to take it? Unless you represent yourself as something like an RIA, which has specific qualifications for it. But most people that hold themselves out as financial advisors are only subject to this suitability standard, if that. And the suitability standard is not much of a standard. That and a nickel get your hot cup a jack squat! It's not a fiduciary standard. It's all one big crapshoot anywho. But as to just talking to people or coaching people, you don't need a certification to do that. But I would not hold yourself out to be a, quote, advisor, unquote, because that term could mean different things in different contexts, and it could be confusing. Forget about it! I think the big no-no that you need to avoid is actually handling somebody else's money or accounts, because that's where you can get into trouble, and that's where you need proper certifications. You would at least need what's called a Series 65 license, which is obtained by taking an exam. And you'd also probably need a Series 7 license, which is another exam. But I'll link to a little article in the show notes explaining what those things are. But in general, as long as you're just talking about the topics and not actually handling other people's money or accounts, you should generally be fine in terms of those regulations. But you should also recognize that what I'm telling you now is just a drop in the bucket in terms of how much information there is out there about this. Like anyone can even know that. And I'm just trying to give you a flavor of what are the considerations and how this generally works. I would definitely do some more research into it if you have specific questions about specific activities. You can't handle the dogs and cats living together. Hopefully that helps, and thank you for your email. Alles klar, Herr Kommissar. Last off. Last off, we have an email from Brett, and Brett writes. Good morning, Frank and Mary. I hope this email finds you both well and will keep things brief with a bit less alphabet soup for Mary to have to contend with. What's wrong? Wrong everything, Troy. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? Dad, how do you spell Frankenstein? I don't know. Why ask your mother? 
I've started the process of moving my retirement account from TSP to Fidelity and easing into full positions in TLT and gold, but doing so a bit at a time rather than going all at once. On another front, I'd be interested to hear Frank's opinion on investing in BDCs as a portion of a risk parity portfolio. Dad, how do you spell hallelujah? How should I know? What do you think I am? A dictionary? Tommy, stop that. Stop it. Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and over again. Now stop it. Stop it. I follow the work of Stephen Bavaria, The Income Factory, and found this article to be quite interesting and would like to hear your thoughts. I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts, and your podcast continues to be my favorite. Thanks, as always, to both of you for the time and effort that goes into each and every episode. It's greatly appreciated. Brett. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. All right, let's first define what we're talking about here. A BDC, for those who have not heard of that term, is a business development company. It was something that was created by legislation in about 1980. And it's described as unregistered closed-end investment companies can be registered as BDCs. And so they are similar to closed-end funds, but not quite the same. So what that means is, in terms of portfolio construction, is a BDC is actually not a particular kind of investment. What it is is a corporate structure. And theoretically, you could shove anything you want inside of a BDC or almost anything you want. They're kind of like REITs or more like closed-end funds in that regard, which means that knowing something's a BDC does not really tell you anything about what it's invested in. And you wouldn't necessarily just group a whole bunch of BDCs together, although I know there are funds that do that. BDCs are often involved in smaller companies, often involved in lending money and leveraged loans and those sorts of things. So they tend to have high volatility, but also generate high income. They're similar to mortgage-backed rates in that regard. I don't have any objections to somebody including BDCs as part of their portfolio, but I can't imagine that they would be particularly necessary in, in anybody's portfolio. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. I'm not sure I'd really want to hold a basket of BDCs. If I were interested in them, I'd probably be looking at individual ones. But then you're basically studying an individual company and its management. And that's a lot more work than I really want to do. What do you think of a person who only does the bare minimum? You should also be aware that there are probably going to be adverse tax consequences to holding BDCs in taxable accounts because they generally throw off ordinary income. So you would probably want to hold it in a tax-deferred or retirement account if you're going to be holding it as part of a larger portfolio. That's where it would go, with the REITs. Did you get that memo? But I see you provided this Seeking Alpha link. When I went to it, it was behind a paywall, I'm afraid. But I will put it in the show notes so others can check it out. And thank you for your email. Now we're going to do something extremely fun. And the extremely fun thing we get to do now is our weekly portfolio reviews of the seven sample portfolios. You can find at www.riskparityreview.com on the portfolios page. Just checking out the markets last week. It was a good week for everything, just about. S&P 500 was up 2.67% for the week. NASDAQ was up 4.82% for the week. 
Small cap value represented by the fund of VIOV was up 4.66%. Gold continues to climb. I love gold! Gold was up 2.79% last week. Long-term treasury bonds represented by the fund VGLT were up 1.39% for the week. REITs represented by the fund REET were up 4.03% for the week. Commodities rebounded. A representative fund PDBC was up 5.44% for the week. And preferred shares represented by the fund PFF were up 1.91% for the week. The only thing that was down was managed futures. Our representative fund DBMF was down 0.35% for the week. Moving to these portfolios, the first one is the All Seasons. This is a reference portfolio. It's only 30% in stocks. It's got 55% in treasury bonds and intermediate and long term. And the remaining 15% is divided into gold and commodities. It was up 2.14% for the week. It is up 4.78% year-to-date and is down 3.66% since inception in July 2020. Our next one is the Golden Butterfly, or three bread-and-butter portfolios. This one's 40% in stocks divided into a total market fund and a small-cap value fund, 40% in bonds divided into long and short treasuries, and then 20% in gold, GLDM. It was up 2.45% for the week. It was up 5.08% year-to-date and up 12.67% since inception in July 2020. Moving to our next one, the Golden Ratio. This one's 42% in stocks divided into three funds, a large-cap growth fund, a small-cap value fund, and a low-volatility fund. And it's got 26% in long-term treasuries, 16% in gold, 10% 10% in a REIT fund, REET, and the remaining 6% in cash, out of which we take our distributions. A money market fund is what I should say. It was up 2.65% for the week. It is up 5.44% year-to-date and is up 8.09% since inception in July 2020. Next one is our Risk Parity Ultimate. I won't go through all 15 of these funds. It's got a lot of stuff in there. It was up 3.18% for the week. It is up 6.21% year-to-date and up 0.38% since inception in July 2020. All of these are making speedy recoveries from the horrors of 2022. Yeah, baby, yeah! And now moving to our three experimental portfolios that have leveraged funds in them. The first one is the Accelerated Permanent Portfolio. This one is 27.5% in a levered Bond fund TMF, 25% in a levered stock fund UPRO, 25% in PFF, that's a preferred shares fund, and 22.5% in gold, GLDM. It was up 4.24% for the week. It is up 11.93% year-to-date. A good two weeks. It is down 14.69% since inception in July 2020. Next one is our aggressive 50-50 which is 50% in stocks and 50% in bonds. One-third of it is in a levered stock fund to UPRO. One-third of it is in a levered bond fund, TMF. And the remaining third is divided into a preferred shares fund, PFF, and a intermediate treasury bond fund, VGIT. It was up 4.36% for the week. It is up 12.86% year-to-date already. It is down 21.81%, though, since inception in July 2020. 
And moving to our last one, the levered golden ratio, which has only been around since July 2021. This one is 35% in a composite fund called NTSX, that is S&P 500 and Treasury bonds levered up 1.5 to 1. It's got 25% in gold, GLDM, 15% in a REIT O, 10% each in a levered small cap fund TNA and a levered bond fund TMF, and the remaining 5% divided into a volatility fund and a Bitcoin fund. It was up 4.36% for the week. It is up 7.66% year to date and down 17.57% since inception in July 2021. At the rate these are going, they'll all make up for 2022 in about eight weeks. (laughs) Somehow I don't think it's going to work out that way, but it's been a good start to the year anyway, which I note was completely unexpected from anybody that I've heard say anything about the markets these days. Should we ask our crystal ball whether it'll continue? Place it over a candle. And it's through the candle that you will see the images into the crystal. And what does the crystal ball say? We don't know. What do we know? You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. Funny, our risk parity radio crystal ball always seems to say the same thing. Okay, okay, okay. Everybody, everybody chill. But now I see our signal is beginning to fade. Just one announcement to make. I wanted to clue you all in that I will be presenting at a conference called the Economy Conference, which is held on the weekend of March 17th this year. It is run by my friend Diana Merriam, and it is in Cincinnati, Ohio, at the University of Cincinnati there. I'm living on the air in Cincinnati. And I'll be running a little workshop there about withdrawal strategies in particular, but I'm sure we'll talk about portfolio construction as well. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. Thankfully, I'm not the only thing featured there. It's actually three days now of presentations and social events about various aspects of financial independence and related topics. The best, Jerry. The best. Diana likes to call it a party about money. Cha-ching, 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 Gary. Money, oh money, how oh, I love thee. Cha-ching, cha-chong, cha-chang, Guru. From pennies to dollars, any amount to do. It's limited to a few hundred people, but there are still tickets available. And I will link to the website in the show notes so you can check that out if you are so interested. Hope to see some of you there. But in the meantime, if you have comments or questions for me, please send them to frank at riskparityradio.com. The email is frank at riskparityradio.com. Or you can go to the website, www.riskparityradio.com, and put your message into the contact form, and I'll get it that way. If you haven't had a chance to do it, please go to your favorite podcast provider and like, subscribe, give me some stars, a review. That would be great. Okay. Thank you once again for tuning in. This is Frank Vasquez with Risk Party Radio. Signing off. Move them on. Hit them up. Move them on. Move them on. Raw hard. Cut them out. Ride them in. Ride them in. Cut them out. Ride them in raw. Rolling, 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 rolling.
The Risk Parity Radio Show is hosted by Frank Vasquez. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, investment, tax, or legal advice. Please consult with your own advisors before taking any actions based on any information you have heard here, making sure to take into account your own personal circumstances.